Welcome, Gasheads, to this A Chat With episode of Gascast. I'm your host, Tom Metcalf, and today I'm delighted to be joined by writer, author, broadcaster, journalist, and most importantly, Gashead, David Goldblatt. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be on the show. Ah, um, if the name rings a bell to you, uh, it's most likely for his books, such as The Ball is Round or The Game of Our Lives, both excellent reads and available for more reputable booksellers. Um, David, I wanted to start with how you became a Gasset. Um, you're originally from London and a Spurs fan, as I understand. That's right. So I grew up in Ricelet in the, uh, the suburbs of West London and inherited Tottenham Hotspurs from my father and my grandfather, who were East End Jews uh, and therefore gravitated inevitably to Tottenham Hotspurs. And, um, you know, they were my team all the way through the 70s and 80s and 90s. And I didn't really arrive in Bristol until 2003. Uh, And I was aware of Rovers because the kind of pioneer amongst my friends who had come to Bristol moved here in 1989. So really back in the day. And uh, he lived in St. Werbergs, and there was no question Rovers was the uh, Rovers was the team while he was here. So I was aware of them. Anyway, I moved to um, I moved to Bristol in 2003, and uh, I was living um, just behind the prison in Warfield. And um, the first couple of weeks I was here, actually, I had terrible flu. Stress of moving put me to bed for two weeks, and I sort of finally rose at some point like in, you know, early September, late August. And it was a Saturday and I felt good. And a friend of mine said, why don't we go to Rovers? I thought, yeah, why don't we go to Rovers? Of course. They're like, you know, 300 metres up the road. And it was one of those lovely, lovely um, late summer days where it's fresh and sunny and it's bright. And I went, oh, wow. The Gloucester Road's filling with blue and white. All of these pubs I've seen, suddenly they're gas pubs and there's a gathering crowd here. And I walked into the men and we sat in that ludicrous stand that's still there, the temporary stand that I think they got from Wimbledon. Um, about, I don't know, it must be like, you know, 20 seasons ago, but it's now permanent. And um, just like, but I went, went with my daughter, who was probably about six, and my friend Dan. And I don't remember much about actually the game. I don't even really remember who we were playing. But I do remember thinking, oh, this is home. This feels like home. I'm coming back here. Um, and that was that, really. I've been going, you know, I have, I've been going. I've seen a few games every season for 17 seasons, except, of course, this one. Um, and, you know... Once bitten, that's it, really, isn't it? Like, what can you do? Yeah, absolutely. So there was never. I mean, Tottenham. Obviously, I've got deep historic residual love for, and it, you know, keeps me interested in the soap opera that is the Premier League. But um, yeah, your basic bread and butter, your emotional manner is uh, is Bristol Rovers these days. Yeah. So there was never any chance of going to the other side of uh, of Bristol. Oh, I've been, I was invited. I had all, a whole bunch of friends who I knew from other walks of my life who lived in Bristol, who were all season ticket holders at City. And they, they had me along and, you know, it is what it is. But it was never, I always felt like, you know, I'm here, not under false pretenses, but I'm going to keep very quiet while I'm uh, going to keep very quiet. <laughs> 
Yeah, fair enough. Um, you said you're going to get to a, a, a few games a season. Do you always um, go and sit in the same place or do you kind of dot around the ground each game? I would say, I mean, I've sat everywhere at some point or another, obviously, because one just must. Um, and I do quite like the, um, the, stat, the, uh, the little terraces behind the dugouts. I think there, I quite like that little space. Um, but no, I'm basically standing the, uh, in the Blackthorn end behind the goal. Uh, probably just as you're looking at the goal, just to the left of the goal, I would say, about a third of the way up. And if I get there early enough, I get to lean on a bar. And if not, not. And that's pretty much my slot. Yeah, it's interesting you say about the, the bit behind the dugout. So I sit just above the dugouts in the big stand on that front okay. row. So I can normally hear the managers. I can, But more interestingly, I can hear the fans who stand behind the dugouts. Because from kind of, I've dotted around the ground a few a few times kind of thing for different games. Um, but they seem to be the most opinionated ones. I think they stand there so that they can definitely shout at the managers so they can hear you're them. So, you're so right. I will never forget going to see... Um, uh, an FA Cup tie there. Oh, it must have been like, I don't know, 2010. And it was, um, was it West Brom? When Roy Hodgson was, no, Fulham. Fulham with Roy Hodgson in charge. Was it like the fourth or the fifth round of the FA Cup? I mean, it was a big deal. It was like, it was quite a run. We'd beaten someone quite good. Anyway, I'm behind Roy Hodgson. Oh man, did they, did he get abuse? It was hysterical. And they mainly focused on his hair which, you know, is sort of slightly bouffant sometimes. And there was a lot of, get your fucking wig off. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's very, it's rich and earthy behind the, um, behind that. I like that. I mean, you know, I quite like um, sometimes being in the, uh, the opposite end of the Blackthorn because then you can really see the away fans. And one of the great joys of the Memorial Stadium is the cruelty of the away stand. I absolutely love it. No roof, no facilities. I mean, you know, it's like only one step down from having barbed wire around it, really. And, um, you know, forgive me, but one of the great, you know, the sort of theatrical cruelty of football is there's few things more pleasurable than a Tuesday or Wednesday night when it's cold and it's raining and you've got a team from up north. And they brought 300 people down in a coach and it absolutely pours with rain. I just, I can't help it. I know it's terrible, but I absolutely love it. And I love how stalwart they are. And sometimes, you know, when they win, you know, it's like the, the celebrations are sort of triple. And when they're losing, it's like the most terrible black miasmic cloud of misery over it. So I really, really like that little corner. I think that's a great place to sit. Yeah, we've all been there as as the away fan. Normally, there's like in our league, there's covered away ends, but like places like um like last season when we went away to like Bromley on a Tuesday night and it was freezing and we were rubbish and I was just stood there the whole time praying it wouldn't rain because I was like this is going to be like just an awful or like Swindon away actually perfect example Swindon away when when it came down and the match got called off because of rain. And I remember walking out the ground and someone said, oh, keep your ticket stub for the rearranged games. You'll get in for free. And I pulled it out of my pocket and it just disintegrated. And I thought, like, oh, <laughs> I had the joys of a white fan. 
<laughs> yeah, do, do you get to go away much for Rovers? I don't. Uh, have I been? You know, the only game I've been because um, I travel a lot for football. So it's like I really like just being at home side of Rovers. But I did go to Wembley for the conference playoff, um, which was it's not quite an away game, but it's definitely travelling, and um, that was just sensational. That was absolutely my best, my best Rovers moment. I um, I was designated driver, and uh, I won't reveal the names of the two gentlemen who I took because they have terribly upright and serious public persona and jobs. But let's just say the drinking had started before we got off the M32, let alone onto the M4. And um, we'd run out of booze by the time we got to Wembley. Um, though very presciently, one of them had sorted out, there's a, there's a website where you can park on people's like, um, like pavements. So we were parked, like literally one minute's walk away from Wembley. It was amazing. We parked on somebody's front garden, basically in someone's front garden. Anyway, straight to Tesco's and uh, and more drinking at that point. It was still two hours to go. And it was, what a day, you know. I mean, I'm sure you were there. Really, half of Wembley was full of gas heads. And Grimsby, you know... Um, had brought, I mean, what is pretty good for the conference, you know, they probably brought 20,000, you know, and made a lot of noise and were really great, but it really was, there were, I thought, 50,000 people here to see the gas. Wow. Wow. And, you know, what a game. We went, we went 1-0 down really, really early on. Got a desperate equaliser right at the end. And then, you know, Classic Rovers just managed to wing it through on penalties. And what was great about that is I actually didn't give up hope. I really did think right from the uh, one we went one, I thought, no, we're going to, we're going to come back. And, um, oh, the guys I was with, um, I mean, they really were dancing with strangers. I mean, it was just sensational. And then the drive home, I mean, the M4 was so full of Rovers cars with flags coming out the back. And we had to stop at Reading because they'd run out of alcohol again. We had to go to Waitrose in Reading, get more beer for the last bit of the journey. And that was, yeah, that was very sweet. And I'd gone a lot, the season, couple of seasons, not the one before, but the one before that, you know, when we... I had a really grim time in League Two. I felt like I'd, you know, done my porridge and suffered. So it was very, 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 very sweet, I would say. That was, yeah, that's my Rovers away day. And what an away day. Um, have you been watching any of the games on iFollow this season? I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling to watch all football. I find initially it was like, do I have no sound or do I have the fake crowd sound? You know, I'm really, really... And when you've got no sound, when you've just got, like, you know, the game, I find it very eerie and echoey and very difficult to... I find it quite difficult to concentrate. It's like the crowd gives structure and rhythm and meaning to what is going on and makes you kind of engage. And I just slightly find myself drifting off whoever it is. Um, and then, obviously, when you've got the sound... I mean, it's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? Even though, I mean, sometimes you can kind of forget that. 
So what I've been tending to do with a bit of Rovers and a bit of the Premier League is um, listen to it on the radio. Because that, in a way, I've listened to quite a lot of football on the radio, just like while the rest of my life is going on. And I find, like, the disruption on radio is less. It sounds more like it used to pre-COVID somehow. So, no, not a lot of watching. Have you been watching, have you been watching every game? Have you been yeah, I've, I've watched every game um, for Rovers. I've watched your kind of Premier League game, but I'm in the same boat as you. It's, it's just, I can't get invested in it at all. I just kind of sit there and with Premier League games, especially I'll sit there on my phone because I don't really care. And I find I'll do it with Rovers games where I'm sat there and something will, like the game will be going on and I'll just be like, oh, I'll just text this person, blah, blah, blah. And I just, yeah. I, yeah no, it's, not, it's not the same. No. I mean, mind you, now we're in uh, now we're in the relegation zone. That could that could bring about a bit more focus and concentration. It sort of feels like, well, a it feels like oh, don't we usually get there in about you know January or February is traditionally when we're we're, we're flirting with the relegation zone. So it's like it's come early this year, but you know it's made me think mm, need to concentrate. This is looking a bit iffy. Um, so yeah, I, I have struggled. I've really struggled with that. Um, and somehow other sports, I watched quite a bit of cricket over the summer. And cricket, you know, where generally there's less crowd and the crowd is less um, an integral part, important as it is, um, that was easier to watch. I kind of got into that groove um, uh, a bit more. But um, I'm sorry, I'm missing man. I mean, that's the, th- the thing, just like miss it, you know, miss like by now, I definitely have been two or three times in the season, I'd say by now. And, you know, I'd have booked in for Christmas and I'm really, you know, that I'm really going to miss. Um, and I miss, you know, obviously I miss, I miss the football. I miss the whole thing. I miss like a lot of people, you know, only 10% of people go to football by themselves. 90% go with someone else. And it is like, that's so, so important. And it's like part of my life in Bristol and what's made living in Bristol and feeling like I'm really part of something here um, has been Rovers, you know, and all the connections, you know, there's like a whole bunch of people I only ever say hello to when I'm at Rovers. And then there's others I see at the pub and there's people I, you know, like really good friends I go with. And so all of those different layers and they're all in abeyance, and I, I, I miss it terribly. I'm sure you do. I'm sure like everyone is feeling that. Yeah. Along those lines. Yeah, no, you've put it way better than I could. Um, what have you made of, of this season? The, uh, the Ben Garner revolution got cut short, and now we've got the best-dressed manager in, in the Football League. <laughs> well, at least we're the best at something. Um. I was never terribly convinced by um, by the regime, and I found the kind of relentless turnover of players. While I'm sure there's good reason and whatever, I found that very difficult. You know, part of um, the pleasure of supporting a club is people hang around a little bit, and you get to know them. I mean, particularly someone I'm not super obsessive, so it takes a bit of time to like learn who the players are. And- what you like about what you don't like and you know all of that little stuff that is part of the kind of pleasure of it and I've really struggled to um struggle to concentrate and struggle to kind of you know make um make the connection um I think it's probably not a bad 
idea. I, I really wasn't convinced by um, by the last appointment. And um, I don't know much about this guy, so I'm not in a position to make make a judgment. I think it was if they were going to do it, it's probably good to do it now. And we've still got, you know, three quarters of the season to, you know, not shoot ourselves in the foot too often. Yeah, and I think, actually, I was thinking this earlier with um, with iFollow, I find that normally... Normally when you're at the ground and you're watching the game, you can kind of see the players by eye and then you start to kind of recognise them and then recognise even like stupid things like how they run. You can yeah. tell like a player, whereas on iFollow, you just you you only follow the ball so you don't see anything off the ball. And yeah, yeah it feels like you're less connected to the players on the pitch just yeah. by watching it on the well, telly. And their idiosyncrasies and who are the people who like to shout at the referee and, you know, that that I, that I really... You could just—I find that very difficult to follow at the moment. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, but what isn't difficult to follow right now? I mean, whose concentration isn't short, frankly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I—I I hear today. I don't know if you saw. It seems to be that if you are not in the top tier of post-lockdown COVID regulations in England, then they are going to allow, allow spectators at sporting events. Um, I think sort of up to a maximum of 4,000, which is like, that's half the stadium actually. But I think it's probably, I think it's a percentage of the, uh, so it will be smaller. But, you know, I'm imagining there will let a thousand people into the men. Um, I mean, I don't know quite how I feel about it. On the one hand, I really want it to be a good thing and safe and a good idea because I know there's a thousand people ahead of me in the queue who really need to go. I mean, I would like to go and it would raise my spirits and bring me and bring me joy. But I feel like there are um, people who are really seriously missing Rovers who need it. You know, I'm like I'm behind them in the queue. There's a lot of season ticket holders who need their dose. Um, but if I did have a season ticket, I would feel a bit queasy about it. I'm not quite sure. And I've had it as well, I should say, and I've got the antibodies to prove it. And I still feel like, quite oh, nice. Like, we know this thing is an airborne disease. We know that it's like much, much worse when there's a lot of people shouting and like, you know, you can't have singing. And it's like, are we going to be like Scotland where they're allowing people in and they say you can't sing? Man, that's just like too weird, isn't it? I don't know quite how I feel about quite how I feel about it I mean good I hope Rovers get some money you know and everybody needs a few quid to help them get through this but um, yeah we'll see I, I'd really like to know more about how this is going to be done yeah the the no singing I just I don't think it's realistic at all I just can't see it happening if, if I'm at the football and we score I'm going to shout there's yeah. no way I can not yeah. I mean you know how can you not just shout at some point come on the gas slightly randomly you know just that's part of the joy of, of you know of being there so we'll see we'll see yeah um, in the past you've not been too impressed by the by the Arcades um, has your opinion of them changed with the the cancelling of the debt and you know the starting on the work on the training ground this is good, you know, this is clear. I mean, there's been a shift inside that family, clearly. And um, the chair now has, I understand, 
owns it, you know, outright rather than as part of the family, which has given him more room for manoeuvre. Um, I struggle always with these kinds of owners in that everything is terribly untransparent and it's all slightly smoke and mirrors and I don't really believe the documentation and I don't, I find the communication um, just not as open and transparent as it could be. That said, the tr it's really great that they're investing in the training ground. Fantastic, you know, we need a better training ground. And I, um, you know, I'm also, I'm not looking for someone who's going to um, spend insane amounts of money. I don't want Rovers to, you know, like, be, you know, like turn into Manchester City. That doesn't seem to me the point of the exercise. I, I would like to imagine that Rovers, you know, it could be a much more organic form of growth that might actually last and is sustainable in this world, you know, rather than a mad yo-yo. So if that's where we're going and if that's the model, then, then that's great. I would like to hear a lot more. And I wish that the owners who, um, and this goes for all owners, not particularly Rovers owners. It's like, you know, you say you're the custodians of, of the club, not merely owners. Well, you know, and that, you know, the fans, it's nothing without the fans. So like speak to us and have an adult conversation with us. I find there's a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors and a lot of PR and quite a lot of bullshitting. And um, I just wish there were more. And then we could have a more serious conversation about it. It's like all the stuff about, you know, are we going to have a new stadium? What are we going to do? I mean, all the debates about stadiums at Rovers have all been conducted really behind closed doors, not engaged the, um, the fans, not really engage the local community. And I think that's really important. It's like, you're going to put a football stadium somewhere. This has an effect on places, right? Much of it really good, but like you've got to negotiate with people. You've got to have a conversation. Um, I mean, it was like when they were going to put Sainsbury's on the men and move to Uri. It was like, what? Well, how do you think the Gloucester Road feels about having a great big supermarket stuck on it when it's meant to be an independent shopping centre? That's like your payoff for being on Gloucester Road to leave that behind. And I always thought the Yui thing was mad um, myself. And I just thought 20,000, 25,000, so it's too big. You know, we're not ready for 25,000. You know, I mean, you can imagine, you know, when the mem has got like seven, 8,000 in it, it's good. It's rocking. It's great, you know. And we're and we're 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 playing okay. It's rocking. It's great, you know. And I could imagine a world in which, you know, Rovers um, were good enough consistently to pull ten thousand, twelve thousand, maybe, you know. And that, but like, so build the appropriate stadium. We're not about to get twenty five thousand. I mean, you know, City are getting twenty five thousand but they've been in the championship forever and I've got half a chance of getting in the Premier League and owned by someone who's really got a lot of money. Um, so, you know, and we can't, that's not where we are. You know, maybe we could be one day, but like one step at a time, do small is beautiful, I say. Anyway, that's what I'm, that, that was the past. That's the past. And if we're going to have a new stadium, and I think there are lots of, you know, there, there are good reasons for doing so. Um, let's have a different kind of conversation with the owners and with the community yeah and I've, I've got a question a bit later about the the stadium when we start going into fantasy land about what we what we can build yeah. and all that um 
sustainable development is a good segue into the next um, bit I wanted to ask about, um, which is your work with the Rapid Transition Alliance. Um, in June this year, uh, they commissioned your report entitled Playing Against the Clock. Um, could you give us the background um, for that report and why it was commissioned? Well, actually, I went to them and said, would you like to publish it? Because it's been sort of right racing around my head for some time. I mean, a million years ago, I wrote a PhD on sociology and environmental degradation, would you believe? And um, this in a funny way, after taking a sort of rather large detour through the history and sociology of football, I've sort of come around full circle back to this. And I suppose like, I come at it two ways. On the one hand, you know, the COVID experience made me think very early on, like, what, what can we what can we learn from this? So you've got to really listen to what the scientists are saying. You know, you've got to assume the worst really can actually happen. And if you want to do something about it, do it now, not later, because it's going to be really expensive further down the line. What would you like, if we apply that to the issue of climate change, things would be, you know, things would look different. So that's partly what got me thinking about that. And I've always thought that, I suppose, if the politics of climate change is to get anywhere, it needs to be the common sense of the age. We can't be debating it. It's like it's too late for that. We've all got to be on board. It's like it's not even a question. We just get on with it. And that means very large numbers of people who are currently not really engaged in the conversation. We need to start having the conversation. And I was actually at an Extinction Rebellion meeting on the Gloucester Road which I can tell you is not a very gashead heavy organization, bless them. And we were having a conversation about precisely this, how can we widen the conversation? Who do we know who's not talking? And I said, well, look, the memorial ground is just up the road from here. I mean, literally up the road. And um, people are not really engaging. That's not top of the top of the, and they're people we should be talking to anyway like the rolling of eyes and disbelief. It was like I'd sort of suggested descending into the seventh circle of hell. I mean, and that made me all the more determined. It was like, oh, guys, we you're not going to do it. Okay, I've got to do it, you know? Um, so that sort of brought me around to it. And once I started doing a bit of research, you know, I found um, there was enough out there to yeah, this is a serious issue and we can do something about it. Um, and so that was my little lockdown project. And I sort of, what I basically said was, how is sport going to be affected by climate change? Right, first and foremost. Number two, what is sport's contribution to climate change? Like what actually is the carbon footprint of the global sports industry in general and football in particular? Three, what can we do about it? So that was, that, that was it. And... You know, sport in general and football in particular, I mean, it's being affected now by climate change. This is not like down the road. You know, I mean, earlier this year, you remember when we thought the environmental story of the year was wildfires in Australia. Remember those before COVID. And the Australian Tennis Open and the cricket that was being played, they all had to stop because the air pollution from the wildfires, which are themselves driven by climate change in Australia, was so bad people couldn't breathe. You know, the Tokyo Marathon, if the Tokyo Olympics had happened this year, they had to move the marathon to Sapporo, a thousand kilometers north of Tokyo, 
because it's too hot in Tokyo in the summer and too humid to run the marathon. And that's climate change. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when they had the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, everything was just fine. But 40 years, 50 years later, the climate will not allow. Um, so how is it going to affect football? Well, generally the world's going to be getting hotter. So in a lot of places, playing outdoors, particularly during the day, is going to start becoming a huge issue, heat exhaustion. I mean, I don't quite know how it's going to be, you know, in, uh, in Bedminster or Hawfield, but like in Ghana or Nigeria, outdoor football by 2040 is going to be quite, actually quite a dangerous uh, phenomenon. And we've already seen the Women's World Cup and the African Cup of Nations last year, they had to introduce the extra water breaks because the heat was so intense. So that's coming our way. You know, there's going to be a lot more, and this will definitely happen in Bristol, is a lot more extreme weather. It's going to be a lot of storms, a lot of mad rain. You know, people think climate change is just about things getting hotter, um, but it's also things getting a bit madder. And we're already seeing the number of games in sport in general, like cricket especially, but also in football, the number of games cancelled due to storms, due to rain, is beginning to rise, and there will be more of that. And uh, grassroots football pitches are going to be in a lot of trouble in this country. I don't know if you remember the big Tewkesbury flood north of Bristol in 2009. Um, absolutely wiped Gloucestershire's, um, you know, grassroots playing fields from which, and these are places that generally don't have great drainage. Again, a lot more of that to come. But the most extraordinary thing, Tom, of all, was I went to a, um, you know, one of the consequences of, Climate change is rising sea levels as the polar ice caps melt. And, you know, also rivers will be flooding more. So the combination of, you know, um, riverine flooding and sea level rises produces a whole lot of problems. So I went, there's a website called climatecentral.org. And basically it's Google Maps. And you pick anywhere you want on Google Maps. And it says, right, what year do you want to know about? So you go 2050. And, you know, do you want a pessimistic version of the predictions? Do you want the mid-range? Do you want the optimistic one, right? So you've got a range. This is all very kosher climate science. And it will show you anywhere on Google Maps what the situation will be in terms of flooding um, in 2050. So I put in um, with um, my, um, my assistant, research assistant, Mossy, uh, the 92 clubs. And by 2050 one quarter of the stadiums in this country will either be actually underwater or annually flooded in a serious way. Like Grimsby Town, oh dear, you better take up water polo. The gas will not be playing you in League Two in 2050 unless we all get in boats, right? Southampton, they're in a lot of trouble. Scunthorpe, in trouble. The Mem is fine, you know, and, you know, you'll be disappointed to hear that I think Ashton Gate's going to be all right as well. But um, that's huge, man. I mean, 2050 is not that far away. Not that far away. And one quarter of football league stadiums will basically be unplayable. I mean, Middlesbrough, the Riverside will be all right. But Steve Gibson's going to have to buy a flotilla of boats to get the fans to there because the rest of Middlesbrough is not going to be all right. So <clears throat> this is serious stuff, man. And in the scheme of things, you know, obviously there are much bigger things that are going to happen. But it was like, let's just, let's see if we can, let's start the conversation there.
you know, let's concentrate on that. So I then looked at um, what's the contribution of sport to, um, to the problem. And I mean, there's, it's real back of the envelope stuff, but what you could say, one way of looking at it is to say the global sports industry is worth about 500 billion a year, not including all the betting, um, which is another thing. So that's about 0.8% of global GDP. And in some ways, sport is not carbon intensive, like compared to, I don't know, making concrete. But on the other hand, it actually is pretty carbon intensive because there's an awful lot of flying and traveling going on. 70% right, of the carbon emissions of most sporting events are just from spectators coming, traveling, right? So... If that's the case, you could say probably global sport is contributing around 0.8% of uh, climate emissions, which may not sound like much, but that's like Poland, Spain. And it's like, we're not saying, oh, Poland, you've got a pass. We'll sort it out. You know, you're fine. Or Spain, no problem. And like within that, football's probably like, I don't know, 25% of it, you know, 30% of it. Um, that kind of order of magnitude. So, you know, sport needs to make, you know, everybody's everything, you know, every walk of life has got to kind of make its contribution. Um, but like I said, football, particularly football, I think can be, can be a catalyst and actually, you know, lead, you know, show what is possible, make it the common sense of everyday life. Um, you know, and for people who are not currently thinking this is nothing to do with me or this can only bring disruption, actually, there's a lot of really positive things that the football industry can do. So I wrote a whole series of proposals about, you know, how we can globally and nationally reorganise our sporting life a little bit to make it carbon zero. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty devastating reading, um, especially the, yeah, the quarter of English league grounds being under underwater or serious risks of flooding I did want to point out that Ashton did flood in 1968 really heavily so there's always hope there is always hope um you've you've talked about like the the changes that need to happen do you see the responsibility for those lying mainly with the individual clubs or with the footballing authorities themselves um I think if we wait for the footballing authorities we'll be here till Christmas as it were, you know, I think everyone's just got to crack on right now. And, you know, the FA has its own responsibilities and the English Football League has responsibilities, but I think everyone's just got to get on with it right now. And, you know, the main framework globally for thinking about this is the United Nations um, uh, framework, for, uh, what is it? The United Nations Sport for Climate Action Framework. Sorry, these such unappealing titles, isn't it? And it's basically the global network of sports organisations. And it's everybody from, you know, FIFA to the IOC to kind of amateur cricket clubs in the outback of Australia to the New York Yankees to the Indonesian Bowling Association, right? All sorts of people have joined up at every, at every level. And at the moment, it basically commits you. I mean, it doesn't bind you to very much, but it's stage one of saying, okay, we have to take this really seriously. We're going to make this not an add-on, but an integral part of our business model. And we're looking for climate neutrality by 2050, um, is what you, you're basically signing up for. So 
that's a pretty good start. I mean, that's where everybody, at the very least, and that, you know, Arsenal just signed up uh, this week. Um, the FA is a member, obviously, Forest Green Rovers, you would imagine, are, are a leading force. So that's the first thing that any football club can do, is sign up to that and take it seriously. And then you have to begin the process of thinking, okay, how do we now make the changes to energy, transport, food, water, construction, all of which are a really big part, like behind the scenes of making a football club work. What are the changes we can make and come up with a plan? And, you know, you're seeing, I mean, you know, particularly if money's no object, um, you've got a lot of clubs moving fast on this. I mean, I suspect Man City and Arsenal will move very fast on this once they really get going. Um, and the Qatar 2022 World Cup, despite being drenched in hydrocarbons, is actually going to be carbon neutral because of the way it's being run and organised. So there's a lot of stuff you can one can do. And it's, um, you know, it's going to need change from us as individuals and as fans. It's not just about, you know, the management. This is this is like everyone's got to make some changes here. Um, but we need and we need to start now. So, yeah, it's everyone. It's not just the authorities. You mentioned Forest Green. I knew they were going to come up. Um, I was going to ask you which clubs you can point to that are doing a, a great job at the moment and kind of practical things that they are doing. So Forest Green are obviously, um, you know, in, in one of the leading clubs in the world. There's a lot of German clubs doing really good stuff. As you imagine, environmental issues very big in Germany. Um, and so a lot of clubs take it very seriously in Germany. Um, and you've got American clubs. And yeah, so it's not just Forest Green. What can you do? Well, number one is energy. Um, and I should say a shout out to Gloucester County Cricket Club, who um, are the neighbours of the gas, pretty much, and who are also taking it very seriously and making a lot of changes. So the first thing is, like, who do you buy your energy from? And I think the gas actually at the moment are stuck in a contract with a rather ungreen energy supplier. I don't know the details, but I seem to remember in conversation with uh, some officials at the club. So that needs to change as soon as possible. You know, at the very least, buy your own, you buy the energy you use from a green energy company, right? Um, you know, if you, I mean, because we'll see how long we're going to be at the men, but, you know, the football world has an awful lot of flat roofs. They need to have solar panels on them. I mean, really, like, of course, you know, and again, Arsenal have done this. The Emirates is covered now and they've invested in a very large battery, which, of course, is what you need to store all the energy. And, and Arsenal has kind of slashed its energy bills, I mean, as well as its carbon output. And then that's money that can be spent elsewhere. And, you know, the, this is the change is coming fast, I think. I think the relative cost of different types of energy means it is madness not to get on this now. So energy, insulation, all of that. Then there's transport, you know. Um, and then, first of all, the team, they need to sort out their, you know, the club's transport before we get to the fans. And this is less of an issue, obviously, for Rovers than, say, Liverpool, because we're flying or less often to Turkey to play in the Champions League, unfortunately. Um, or to the Far East for a pre-season game. Exactly, exactly. The global, the world, the fools, the fools when they could... They could have Rovers on a global summer tour. Um, so we, they need to do that. And again, in Gloucester County Cricket Club, basically every vehicle is electric. 
lots of electrical charging points, et cetera, et cetera. It, you know, and they've encouraged all of their players and made loans available to players to switch their vehicles. So everybody's using electric. Um, the big challenge is, um, and this is a really big challenge for the gas, is um, spectators. And 82% of um, uh, spectators at the men come by car. Uh, and that's what the, the club tell me. And the club has made a number of efforts to organise, like, you know, mini buses from Yate or Kingswood or, you know, some of those kind of outlying, not Kingswood, but some of the more outlying areas. And nothing is, nothing is, well, at the moment it's not working. And of course, you know, I completely understand this, you know, the bulk of Rovers support in East Bristol, you know, um, and how do you get to, across the road by buses, at least two buses. And you've got to come in and then you've got to come out and the buses are expensive and bad. You know, why? Of course people are not. Plus you've got the fact that everyone's in their groove, right? Part of the joy, as you know, of going to football is you kind of do the same thing with the same people at the same time. And that means, you know, the route and the journey is part of it. And people have habits, right? And it's very difficult to break those habits, particularly when, you know, even though parking, as you know, is a complete nightmare on a Saturday, um, it's very hard to break that. I mean, I suspect, and I think this is the strongest case in the end for leaving the men, much as I love its dilapidated and eclectic architecture and its superb position. I mean, what a great place for a, for a stadium. Um, you know, I think a carbon zero Bristol Rovers probably needs um, probably needs to be somewhere that's a bit more of a transport hub. Um, I mean, you know, that's there's 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 the debate, there's the conversation that probably needs to happen. You know, and then there's plastics. I mean, you know, there's still a lot of plastic, single-use plastic at the moment. I mean, that really just like, oh come on, we've all watched David Attenborough. We've all got to stop using plastic bloody forks and spoons. We don't need them. You know. And I know this is difficult again, caterers have to make changes, but the technology, the equipment, it's all there now. There's no excuse. We just need to crack on with that. Um, so I think those are changes, um, you know, that would be a big start, I would say, with Rovers. I mean, you know, if you want to get really fancy pants, we can start going organic on the pitch and we can get solar powered lawnmowers you know, and we can make sure that the strip is not made of, um, is made of recycled materials and, you know, which, um, has happened at City. Um, uh, but, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of easy gains, you know, that wouldn't be hugely expensive. And um, I think, yeah, again, you know, it wouldn't require a lot of change. We're not asking fans, you know, to, to do anything, you know, to be part, we were asking fans to be part of the process. And like I say, we can't go on having a world where 82% of people arrive by car. But clearly we can't change it right now or tell people just to get on their bike. It's not, that's no good. So the club really needs to start engaging on that. Yeah. Um, stepping into kind of like the fantasy realm for a moment. If if Rovers were to move to a, uh, a site, maybe, maybe where they sell fruit at the moment. Um, yeah, down in the dings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, what what would be your kind of like top your hit list kind of things that you'd want to see there? Okay, so you know, I'd say let's go down the, the Forest Green Rovers route and build a carbon neutral carbon zero stadium. I mean, they're building one out of wood. 
because these days, I mean, with technology, it's like different class. I mean, in Tokyo, they're building skyscrapers, 50 stories high made out of wood, man, out of wood. Don't need any concrete or steel anymore. I mean, unbelievable. So let's build, you know, um, a carbon zero wooden stadium, you know. Um, I would say let's build it at about 12 to 14,000, but with, you know, um, built into the design, a simple way of expanding it should the miracle ever happen. But let's remember, you know, Bournemouth survived in the Premier League for what? Six seasons with 22,000. And like 4,000 of those seats were basically a glorified version of what we've got opposite the Blackthorn, right? So I reckon 12 to 14,000 would be would be good. I would like the club, I would really love it. You know, one of the challenges with football stadiums is what do you do with them given that they're actually only used for their number one purpose for three hours a week. So how can it both economically, socially and architecturally be used all the time? How can we integrate it into the community and into the city? I mean, there are lots of things we could think about. I mean, you know, sometimes schools get built as part of and next to um, uh, the stadium. I mean, I would like to imagine that we can have great five side you know 3g 4g pitches you know and um that would be you know for after school all the kind of great educational work because the, the gas do really has got a great educational unit right doing really good work at lots of different levels you know and getting kids playing football so let's i really like the idea of that being present a really big presence in a um, in a new in a new stadium um I'll tell you what I really, for me personally, um, I really would like them to think about building some public space into it. You know, part of the joy of going to football is the hanging around before you go into the stadium. And I know everybody wants us all to go into the stadium as soon as possible, to spend as much money as possible. But actually, we don't really want to do that a lot of the time. We want to hang around, you know, on the Gloucester Road, at the Wellington, you know, on Hawfield Common, right? And I say, okay, so let's build that into it. And I think Anfield has done the redevelopment of Anfield. Um, basically created public space around the stadium in a really good way. So there's a lot more, you know, hanging out and milling around. And they also, you know, put a lot of really good food there. So they're still earning a few quid. There's space for independence as well. Do you know what I mean? That's like, so I would really love that to be part of it. I mean, I think if we're going down into the city centre, obviously the most important thing in a way is like get the transport right, you know, I mean, the best thing would be for them to, um, you know, because there's railway line going through there, um, is to have a, um, a stop for match days. You know, instead of having to go all the way into Temple Meads, you just get out and there you are, right? And that sorts the carbon issue out. Um, and, you know, you could get there from East Bristol. That would be brilliant. Of course, there need to be buses, you know. And I think you've got to be quite tough about cars if you're going to do that. If you can do it with, with a train with buses, I mean, there's good cycling routes and stuff around there. You've got to sort of cycling parking. Just make parking really hard. Can't have, you know, I mean, at Verde Bremen, um, where they started, the club uh, created a special service on the river because you can actually, it's next to the river. So people are getting boats to the stadium, which I thought was great. And then for about, I don't know, 
pretty much a quarter to half a mile around the stadium, you cannot park. It is car free. It's not happening. So that would be, um, I think we should do, I think we should do, um, yeah, I think we should do that. I mean, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see lots of green. I'd like to see loads of trees. I want to see really funky solar panels. You know, I'd really love them to build a sort of museum space. Um, I think, you know, um, I mean, there are good and bad football museums in this world, but, you know, football's about history, isn't it? It's about tradition. It's about, you know, we've been, God, Bristol Road has been around for a long time. I mean, it's a venerable Victorian institution. And um, there isn't really any space at the moment at the men, partly because the men sort of like, we've made it ours, but it's not, it's not Eastville, is it? You know, where like really the soul still resides, probably underneath the Eastville club. Um, so I think, you know, it would be great to have a museum, you know, um, and not a fancy flashy one, but something that tells Rover's story and gives a space for fans to tell their story. And I think that would be, I'd really like to see, I'd really like to see that as part of it. It's a bit of a long shopping list, isn't that? Um, <laughs> I would like to see, um, what the Watney cup actually looks like. There you go. There you go. That's exactly what we need. You know, I want to go somewhere. I think of all the old footage of Rovers that they must have. It would be so great. You know, I bet the the photography bank will be huge. You know, I'd like to go on a 3D tour of Eastville in 1974. How great would that be, you know, and see the Greyhound racing and actually see the gasometer. And, you know, that I think, I think that would just be, I'd love that. Um, and, you know, I'd love, obviously, football grounds need pasties and beer. That's really important. Absolutely. No problem with that. Eating a few pasties in my time at Bristol Rovers. Um, I would really love a slightly wider spread of food than is currently available. You know, um, like, why falafel? Where's the falafel? The best food I've ever eaten at a football game is in Israel, in East Jerusalem where a hole in the wall next to the stadium did falafel hummus wraps with chips inside the halal. Really, really good, man. Oh, wow. That's it's like in one hand, that's what you want at football. And the best coffee I've ever had at football is at the San Siro in Milan before the Inter Milan derby. And, uh, you know, 50p for an espresso. Bloody great, two quid at Costa. My God. So I'd really like to see that. Um, I mean, a bit cheeky. I just don't really think there should be a little smoking zone. We are in Bristol. I'm not saying in. I'm not saying actually in the seats, right? It's the 21st century. But like, let's have a little space where we can all where we can all go and have a puff at halftime. That would be nice. Um, I'd really like to see the women play. I'd like to see. You know, I'd like. I'd really like a situation where. Um, the women's team can come and play in the stadium. I think it's really in, in raising the profile of, um, of the women's game and giving it its due place. It would be really great if they could play at least some of their games in a new stadium. I mean, I know the crowd's not huge and it's good that they're out in Filton and doing their thing, but it'd be really nice to have them in the stadium uh, as well. Um, I could go on, but like that'll that'll do. That's enough of a shopping list, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I'd like to visit the stadium. It sounds uh, it sounds wonderful. Um, unfortunately, we've got to come back to reality. 
Um, and the reality is that we are in the middle of a global pandemic. And one of the things that that pandemic has thrown into sharp focus is the inequality in the game. Um, do you think COVID's an opportunity to kind of reset the relationship between the, the Premier League, the golden kind of area of the Premier League, and then everyone else, the EFL? Well, it's certainly that's what Manchester United and Liverpool thought when they came up with Project Big Picture. God, what a terrible name. I wish I'd been in the room when somebody dreamt that up. Um, you know, they saw it as an opportunity, but to actually like push the inequalities even further and turn economic inequality into kind of permanent political inequality by giving additional votes and vetoes to the kind of top teams within the Premier League. So I think people, crises are always moments when people see the opportunity for change. A lot of the energy has gone in the wrong direction. Um, can we imagine a bigger, you know, further changes further down, further down the line? I mean, I think it is, even in the kind of solipsistic world of the Premier League, they are realising actually they're not detached from the rest of the football culture, that their success in, in some ways rests on the rest of the pyramid. You know, without the pyramid, they're detached and meaningless from the rest of the country. And, you know, that's the, can I put it, you know, um, one of my great pleasures in life is on a Saturday afternoon at five o'clock, is to listen to the, um, the classified results. I love it. It's not the results. It's the classified results, right? And I loved it when it was, um, what's his name? Gordon, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy used to do it. And now it's Charlotte Green. And I love them both. And it's like, it's the whole of England and a bit worse. You know, it really is the whole of England. It's like a whole thing. And the Premier League is like, is not detached from that, you know. Um, I mean, if can it be turned into some serious change? I'm really struggling at the moment, you know, to, you know, particularly because of who owns and runs the Premier League, to see significant shift without some really serious government intervention. I just can't see them at the moment, really giving up. I mean, they barely give any money to the grassroots. You know, I mean, I think there might be a rethink of the parachute payments. That I can see happening, you know, and I think it's got to be compulsory. The Premier League should just say, you want to be in the Premier League, then all your player contracts have to have a reduction in salary if you get relegated. Because that's they all get themselves in that problem. And nobody will force that on the players because they worry then the players will go elsewhere. So you've got to force it on everyone. And if you force that on everyone, then the need for parachute payments is shrunk considerably, right? And it's quite a lot of money. I mean, when you, you know, as you know, I mean, like the sort of money, like the parachute payments that, are, that the, the three teams come down with, like that's more money than the whole of League One put together. So I could imagine if you could deal with the parachute payment issue, there's actually a bit of slack in the system you know, to um, to pass pass a little... I mean, just enough for people not to be going broke, you know. No one no one imagines the gas is about to make a profit anytime soon, but that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to have decent, safe facilities, you know, and then we'll get on with it. You know, we just don't want to go broke. Um, and that would be, you know, I think that there, there, there's room, there's definitely scope for change. I think there's definitely some scope for change there. 
Yeah, the, the changes to the parachute payments um, and it being a kind of percentage of the broadcast income instead was part of the big picture. Kind of that's the way that Rick Parry was trying to sell it, um, part of it to the FL clubs. Um, the ongoing row about who is going to pay for bailing out EFL clubs, um, if it's the government or the Premier League, um, is an interesting one. I think considering the majority of Premier League teams are actually making a loss do they have a point where they can you know i mean it's also there are no poverty? other industries no one's turning around to you know uh i don't know the uh the national theater and saying well you've got an endowment why aren't you bailing out you know small theaters in Wrexham? i mean it's quite unusual i don't know there's is there any other industry or any other walk of life where this kind of internal industrial transfer of money is being proposed. I find that I, I, I am unconvinced. I mean, I do think the Premier League needs to spread more money around. I do think that it needs to support the grassroots as well uh, more. Uh, and I think it needs to, you know, uh, stop being such a disruptive force. But I actually think getting the Premier League to bail out the EFL, you know, I'm slightly struggling actually um, with that. Why? Why the Premier League? And how would they? You know, like now in the middle of it, they're going to ask them to do that. They've already set their budgets for this year. They're all losing money. It's not like I say they've got lots of money coming in, but as you know, apart from you know Manchester United makes a profit because the Glazers sweat it, and then they take the profit, right? You know, uh, in directors' loans and all of that. And Arsenal, because Stan Kroenke's so mean, um, just about breaks even. But everybody else is basically losing money after tax. So, like, where's the slack in the system? I mean, you could say, oh, well, next year you've all got to pay 10% of your... And then how would you divide it up? Would you just say, well, everyone's going to get a bit or we're only going to give it to the clubs that are in trouble? Does that then reward the clubs who basically budgeted badly? I mean, it's complicated. So I think that, you know, it's like people get very riled by the Premier League and rightly so and lash out at it. But I think sometimes it's unfair. It was like Hancock at the beginning of the um, uh, of COVID saying, you know, well, Premier League players should have a whip round. And you think, well, how come you never say that about all the bankers and the accountants and the lawyers who donate? How about saying that to all the Russian oligarchs who put up the money for the Conservative Party? No, we'll have a go at the Premier League players, who it turns out actually have been amongst the most generous people in the country. You know, I just think it's there's that sort of like instinctive reaction, and I think it's wrong actually. And then you know, if you add Marcus Rashford into the equation, I mean, really they've really got no ground. So um, the lower leagues do need help, though. They need help to get through this, and they need help to come out to come out the other side. Um, and I think, as I say, I would be aiming for parachute payments. I think the government, you know, through the furlough scheme, obviously, is doing a certain amount of supporting. Um, I think it probably has to be a collaboration. Uh, I mean, the government's going to have to pay for some of that. Um, but you know, it's only enough. We're not talking about mad money here. We're talking like. I mean, rugby league just got 33 million, didn't it? And I'm not saying rugby league shouldn't get it. I've got nothing against rugby league, but like, okay, so if there's 33 million for rugby league, you know, which is um, 
what they paid up to, you know, one man to be a uh, go-between in a PPE deal earlier this earlier this year. You know, then that kind of money probably should be available, particularly for one and two. The championship, there's quite a lot of money in the, and a lot of stupidity in the championship. But League One and Two, you know, clubs are surviving like their turnover is like a million quid down at the bottom a year. I mean, it's like it's small, it's small fry just to keep everybody going. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, the last question I've got um, is it was about Project Big Picture. Um, do you kind of feel like it's always going to happen. There is always going to be a European Super League. Um, the, the exact question is, is it the next evolution of the, the blueprint for the future that kicked off the Premier yeah. League? Well, I mean, the European Super League conversation, I slightly, oh, slightly despair. I mean, you know, we've been having this conversation since 1988 when Silvio Berlusconi first came up with um, the idea. And, you know, often it's been used as a kind of uh, a bargaining weapon to make UEFA punt up more money to the big to the biggest clubs. And sometimes they're more serious about it and it kind of fluctuates. My feeling is, first of all, like, how dare they? You know, European football is a precious collective um, cultural resource. You know, European football was invented really in the 1950s, as was UEFA, at the same time that the European community and the process of European integration began. And the spirit was the same. It wasn't about making money. It was about spreading peace and spreading connection and creating a common European home. And it's like, you know, having just spent most of the 20th century slaughtering each other in very large numbers, which people tend to forget. It was like, okay, maybe we should play together rather than fighting. And, you know, it's one of the very few things about Europe that is truly popular with everybody. You know, people recognise that European football and European football nights are something a bit special, aren't they? Even like, you know what it's like at the gas on a Tuesday night? I see everybody looking at their phones at half time, seeing what the scores in the, Premier League, in the Champions League are, you know, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, you can have you can have more than one pleasure and that was made you know it was never a commercial operation for the first 30 or 40 years i mean sure people were paid no we wanted to be bankrupt but it wasn't a mad commercial circus and that created you know why does the champions league matter why does the european you know because the european cup matter and that's taken 40 50 years of tradition to make that and how someone can just take that away say, oh, we own this 14 clubs it's like who are you you know, who are you? So I just think at that level, it's profoundly, profoundly wrong. Um, I also think, like, what's the point? None of you are trying to make a profit. Barcelona doesn't make a profit. Real Madrid and Barcelona are designed not to make a profit. They're not companies. So getting even more money than you're getting now, it's not like it's going to turn into a profit for anyone. So what is it going to turn into? Well, you'll have more money to buy more players, but you're the richest clubs anyway. So... Like, since when did Barcelona and Real Madrid not have a super competitive squad, right? All of these clubs are already in that position. And if they're playing, you know, with the, uh, just against each other, I just, what's the point? Okay, you're going to say now this is, you know, poor old PSG who, you know, have made French football so boring, finally have someone good to play against. Well, 
Who cares? Like, really? PSG versus Chelsea for the fourth time this season? Do we care? I mean, again, you know, I mean, maybe if it lasted 100 years, we'd start caring. But our affections and our narratives are already sort of elsewhere. So I really struggle to see what they think they're doing, why they think it's worth, why they think it's worthwhile. And I suppose there's a bit of me that also thinks, you know, these are the clubs that certainly in the top divisions have, and certainly in Germany and Italy and Spain, have created very one-dimensional competition. And I kind of think, well, all right, fuck off. See you later. See you later, mate. See how you like Inter versus PSG for the fourth time, you know, this season. And like, what happens to away fans? What happens to away fans if it's a league, you know? I really struggle. Like, away fans, football without away fans, football without fans is bad enough, but football without away fans? So I kind of almost think we should call their bluff. I just sort of think, it's not going to make life at Rovers any different. It'll be things will just carry on just the same, you know? Um, So I kind of think, you know, go. You know, I, I think we should call their bluff, actually, on this. I don't think they'd really do it. I don't believe it myself. Oh, I don't know. I, I think they'd do it, but I'm I'm completely with you. I think people would just get bored of it. Um, yeah. Like, if I was a Liverpool fan and then suddenly, instead of going away to, well, I don't know, like Burnley or whatever, yeah. not amazingly glamorous, but it's a short train ride, you know, and you're in England, you're not getting on a plane every other week to go to Istanbul or Milan, which amazing for the first season. I think they just love it. But then after a while, you're just like, I'm not shelling out several hundred quid. Yeah. People are stretching as it is, you know, no, it's crazy. And it's like, yeah, I think we should just call the bluff. Go, go, go make your own, go make your own arrangements. And like no promotion and relegation. Oh, please. I mean, you know, like, whereas it's like, that's the joy. I mean, even like I said to you, the fact that Rovers at the beginning of this conversation are now in the relegation zone, now I'm interested. Now I'm taking note, you know, because in the end, I don't know. I don't really think football's about winning and losing. Football's just about the journey and the story, you know, and sometimes there's winning and sometimes there's losing. And, you know, in the end, it's not really, I don't think that's, that's not what's getting me. I mean, if winning was everything, what on earth are we doing at Rovers? You know, not that I don't like to win. Don't get me <laughs> wrong. Not that I don't want every time I go and wish with every fibre in my body that Rovers are going to win 7-0. But it doesn't matter that they don't. I'm still going. Yeah, I'm... 100% with you on that one. Um, well, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. Um, thank you very much for your time, David. This has been wonderful, I have to say. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Like I say, it's a real honour to be on Gascast. Great. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, fingers crossed, I'll see you at the Men. And if it doesn't happen this season, definitely next season. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, and League One. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we'll we'll see. Um, and thank you, Gasserds, for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed this, please consider leaving us an, a review on iTunes. Um, thanks to your reviews, we are the number one football podcast in Japan. So you know, there's something. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. I just think that's a good thing. 
Yeah. You've got to, as they say, you've got to take the positives. Absolutely. Take it as a positive. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Um, all that's left for me to say is up the gas. Up the gas, man.